0: Can you imagine losing to this guy? Can you imagine? You better not do that to me, Wisconsin. You know, know, if we win, Wisconsin, we win. It's a big deal. We win, Wisconsin. We win, Wisconsin, it's over.
1: For the last four years, Wisconsin has been in the crosshairs of both political parties. With divide-and-conquer politics, struggling family farms, and stark racial disparities brewing underneath the surface, it's now time to take a look at what's actually happening on the ground this election. Unlike many swing states, your Arizonas, Floridas, even Texas to an extent, demographics aren't changing here. There's not an influx of retirees or immigrants with fresh perspectives coming to Wisconsin. It's a very stable group. To flip this state you have to change minds. It's a game of persuasion. Wisconsin is also a state that comes down to historically tight margins, which means that in addition to turning out reliably Republican and Democratic voters, each campaign is simultaneously trying to shrink the margins of victory where their opponent is strongest. Each and every voter is in play. With only one week to the election, it's time to hear each campaign's closing argument. From Wonder Media Network, I'm Grace Lynch, and this is Winning Wisconsin, the story of one state fighting for its own political identity with national implications. One of the challenges with examining what's happening on the ground is the fact that there isn't really a typical Wisconsinite. Each area of the state has a distinct culture, political leaning and motivation. Here's Charlie Sykes to break that down.
0: It's hard to cover Wisconsin because the contrasts are so huge. You have this very, very intense pocket of liberalism in Dane County, Madison. Milwaukee is very Democratic, very liberal. And then it's surrounded by some of the most conservative Republican counties in the country, the Wow counties, Waukesha, Ozaki, and Washington counties, right? So, and then, of course, you have rural Wisconsin, which has become increasingly Trumpy. If you parachute in to Wisconsin, unless you go to all of those segments, you, you're going to get a, a distorted view. You go to Madison, Wisconsin, and it, it will be indistinguishable from landing in Berkeley, California, or Burlington, Vermont, Right? Whereas if you go to Washington County or the county that I'm in right now, you're in hardcore Trump country. Well, that's 20 miles away from one of the most intensely Democratic counties in the country. So that's that's part of the dilemma, is we are so so sharply segregated. The maps are very red and very blue. So that that's what makes it hard to get a sense of, of what, what the typical Wisconsinite is like.
1: So for today, we're going to look at some of these places we haven't yet visited in Wisconsin and see what the campaigns are doing to actually try and win each area. Following 2016, the Republican Party felt confident in their statewide strategy. After all, it had netted them a huge victory. The Democrats threw out their entire campaign playbook. Here's chair of the Wisconsin Democrats, Ben Whipler. You may remember him from episode one.
2: In 2016, the first ads for the Democratic campaign aired starting the week of October 28th. In 2020, ads have been going for months. In 2016, the organizing program to turn out the vote really was built out starting in late summer. In 2020, the organizing program started in the spring of 2017. We have been building and organizing and recruiting volunteers, and training local neighborhood teams for three and a half years to prepare for this moment. It is it's not apples to oranges, it's grapes to watermelons.
1: After 2016, the former head of the Wisconsin Dems, Martha Lenning, went about transforming the organizing apparatus. She traveled the state raising money to provide an infrastructure for year-round organizing driven by members in their own communities.
2: By the time I was elected chair in 2019, we had hundreds of neighborhood teams across the state, an infrastructure that the state party had never created before. As we moved into 2020, we just we put this on jet fuel. So to give you a sense of what this all means, in the fall of 2016, there was door knocking across Wisconsin. In the fall of 2018, with half the budget still of a presidential campaign, through these neighborhood teams, the state party and the coordinated campaign supporting Evers and Baldwin knocked on almost twice as many doors as the presidential campaign had two years earlier. By the time Biden got to Wisconsin, we had a fully-fledged, best-in-class, state-of-the-art organizing operation ready to go. And the Biden campaign clicked into place with it, has integrated fully with it. So it was sort of like we had the, the race cars zooming down the track at full speed, and Biden was able to jump in and then put his foot even further on the gas. That is a total transformation from the 2016 scenario.
1: Heading into 2020, the Democrats had a revamped operation. They were coming off a series of commanding wins and record turnout in the 2018 midterms. But a lot of organizing involves person-to-person interaction, door-knocking, meet-and-greets. Campaigning is a contact sport. COVID-19 threw all of that into question. And each campaign's response to COVID was as polarized as their politics.
2: If you talk to people who support Biden and Harris, they are really concerned about the coronavirus pandemic. And if you talk to people who support Trump, a lot of them think that the virus is a hoax, overblown. The biggest problem is the mask order. Trump is talking to a group of people who think he's doing a great job on COVID-19, and his campaign is holding in-person rallies and you know going right up to people's doors and, and knocking and having face-to-face conversations. And the Biden campaign is talking to a group of people that want to prioritize getting the virus under control so we can reopen the economy and send kids back to school and not have to worry when we hug grandparents. So, there's just a huge difference. And that is playing out in how we campaign as well. Right now, the Biden campaign is fully virtual. We're using phone calls and text messages and relational organizing where people reach out to folks that they know. But it's a very different picture from what you see on the Republican side.
1: Ben's right. The Republican side is very different. Their campaign has essentially carried on as planned. The president is still throwing large rallies. In fact, he was just in Waukesha this Saturday.
0: So from Green Bay to Kenosha, from Madison to Milwaukee, for Janesville to right here, right here where we're all together, what a group of people. We're all freezing our asses off of that zone.
1: And while the president continues to claim these events aren't risky because they are outdoors and masks are worn, there's plenty of evidence to suggest that those aren't consistently upheld policies. And social distancing is clearly thrown by the wayside. Republican organizers on the ground are continuing to canvass and knock on doors, and they're pretty confident in that decision. Here's the chair of the Wisconsin GOP, Andrew Hitt.
3: I like to say that the Democrats are up in the cloud and we're on the ground knocking on doors, having events, uh, organizing, getting out the vote. You know, we we went virtual in, in March and kind of stayed virtual in April and May. But by about the second week of June, we decided to get back out on the campaign trail and really in the field, knocking on doors, doing sort of those more traditional things that you would see a campaign do.
1: After the Democrats won big in the 2018 midterms, the Wisconsin Republicans knew they had their work cut out for them to repeat a victory in 2020.
3: In Wisconsin, we have a group of folks that we call disengagers people who voted for the president in 2016 didn't actually come out and vote for governor walker in 2018 tens of thousands uh, and in a state where the president won Wisconsin by 22,000 and you know governor walker lost by a little over 30,000 that's pretty impactful so we have been doing everything that we can to make sure we're connecting with those disengagers you know i don't think there's any doubt that this is going to be a close race wisconsin is a purple state that swings back and forth, you know, and has tight margins, you know, even if you go back to kind of like the Bush races in 2000 and 2004, I mean, 2004, you know, President Bush lost by 5,000 votes. So we're talking about a state that, you know, 5,000, 22,000, 30,000 votes can swing, can swing at Republican or can swing at Democrat.
1: As you might recall from episode one, Wisconsin is full of split ticket voters. Voters who chose, at the same time, to vote for the first openly gay, very progressive woman in the Senate, Tammy Baldwin, and former conservative anti-labor governor, Scott Walker. So that means that every voter is independently in play. And because the state comes down to such slim margins, each vote really matters. It's not just a matter of turning out each campaign's base they actively need to encroach on the other campaign's margins. Here's Ben.
2: Trump won in 2016 fundamentally by driving up the margins in rural Wisconsin. There's one analysis that found that half of the swing from Romney's loss in 2012 to Trump's victory in 2016 came from communities in which fewer than 1,000 people cast ballots. So for Democrats to win, we need to blow out turnout in cities, uh, hold and build their advantage in suburbs and shrink the margins in rural Wisconsin, even in places where Republicans are probably going to get the majority.
1: A lot of campaigns get to rest on turning out their base of supporters, but not in Wisconsin. They need to persuade voters, even if, as Ben mentioned, it's in an area where they have no chance of getting a majority. That means there's a lot of clashing on the ground vying for the same votes. Just as the Democrats are trying to peel off suburban and rural voters, the Republicans are targeting Democratic strongholds in the cities. Last week, we talked about the uphill battle of turnout in Milwaukee. But there's another side to that coin, the unprecedented efforts by the Wisconsin Republican Party to reach black and brown voters.
3: In Milwaukee, for example, with the Black community and the Hispanic community, I mean, we've done, I think, probably more than we have ever done to kind of go after that vote. For the first time in the history of the Republican Party of Wisconsin, we opened up an office in the city of Milwaukee, in the central city. Kind of hard to believe that that had not been done before. We're, you know, interacting with the community. We're trying to uh, do events there. We're, we're trying to provide community service it's going quite well. We have candidates that work out of there, organize out of there, volunteers that organize out of there, going and knocking on doors, talking about the accomplishments of this president you know, we have a lot to talk about now that's benefited, you know, the black and the Hispanic community. And we are doing mail pieces, direct mail pieces in the black and Hispanic community. We're doing radio. We've actually started our own radio show on black radio hosted by our minority outreach director and the chair of our African-American council. So we're really going on offense and courting some of those votes because I think we really have a huge opportunity here to really talk about some of the accomplishments, but also talk to, you know, I think it's important to talk to people about issues that matter to them. And that's that's what we want to do here.
1: Andrew and the rest of the Wisconsin Republicans do not expect to win the city of Milwaukee, but to their credit, recent polling has shown that compared to 2016, Trump is performing better among young black voters, particularly young black men. And he's improved his numbers with Hispanic voters by double digits. So there's reason to believe that if Republicans can build on these trends and eat away at the Democratic base of support in Milwaukee, that it could be enough to secure the state for the Republicans once again. But just outside the city, in the suburbs of Milwaukee, the Democrats are playing the same game. Their targets? What are locally known as the Wow Counties,
4: the Wow counties, for those who don't know, is Waukesha County, Ozaki County, and Washington County. And those are the little further out suburbs of Milwaukee and Wisconsin. For as much as they lumped together, they're all actually very separate dynamic beasts. Washington County is a very small, generally more rural county. And that is definitely an aging population. There's not a ton of growth. Ozaki and Waukesha, on the other hand, we are older, yes, we are wealthier and affluent, higher educated than most of the per capita in Wisconsin, but we are growing really rapidly.
1: That's Matt Moreno, the chair of the Waukesha Dems. At 29, Matt is the youngest county chair in the state of Wisconsin and has been for a while. After 2016, he felt there was an opportunity to do more in the county to grow Democratic support. When he didn't feel that was well received by leadership, he challenged the existing chair and won. He's been serving ever since. Matt was not at all what I was expecting from a county chair. In addition to just being young, he's also got cotton candy colored hair and a few lip piercings. When we spoke, he was wearing an interrupters t-shirt which I had to google after the fact and apparently is a ska punk band based out of LA. The other notable thing about Matt is that he's a volunteer. Everyone with the Waukesha Dems are volunteers. It's a labor of love. I caught up with him one morning before he left for his day job. So let's get back to the Wow counties. Here's Matt.
4: The WOW counties are the heart of the Republican base in Wisconsin, uh, Waukesha specifically, just because of our size. Waukesha County has about 270,000 voters, give or take, which is the largest county in the country to be as solidly red as we are. And to put it into context, Hillary did decently well, actually, in Waukesha. She got 33% of the vote. The Republican Party has done a great job in Wisconsin of kind of building their brand in that you were Republican and you're a proud Republican and your neighbor's Republican and they're a proud Republican and you guys share that. So when new people move in, they're kind of brought into this proud Republicanism. I think a lot of them call themselves like country club Republicans. You know, the Mitt Romney types who are wealthier, who do have a lot of education, who are very affluent in their community, that is very much the brand of the Republican Party out here. And I think the reason we're seeing a lot of changes in my community is because this brand of Trump Republicanism doesn't jive well with this older brand of Republicanism that stays here. You know, because yes, they like their lower taxes and yes, they like smaller government, But they're not really signed up for, like, the racism and the homophobia that we're seeing out of the Trump administration.
1: There's good reason for the Democrats to think this tension among suburban Republicans could be meaningful. In the midterm elections, all across the country, affluent suburbs broke for the Democrats. Turned off by the president's more bombastic qualities, white suburban women were the driving force behind the 2018 blue wave. Democrats are trying to hold on to this growing momentum with this key voting block to eat away at Republican margins. Matt sees signs that it's working,
4: literally. So in 2016, Waukesha County, we had maybe like 600 Hillary Clinton signs. That's like an average number. This year, I think we're closing in on 5,000 Joe Biden signs in the county, just Waukesha. And these are just like massive, unprecedented numbers. I think it's important that in Waukesha County specifically, it's a very red county. People think it's a like people feel like it's a red county. You feel like you're a lonest Democrat. That's the most common thing I hear when we're talking is like, I'm the only Democrat out here. And I'm like, actually, there's like four neighbors that I talk to that are also Democrats. It helps people feel not so isolated. And I think that's a big reason we're seeing more people coming out as Democrats, more people saying. You know, I voted Republican in the past, I still may in the future, but this year I'm voting Democrat because they're seeing more of it and they feel a bit more safe and confident in saying it. The change we're seeing is significant because where every vote we get is basically a swing because we have a voter turnout of the like high 80s percents. We have a very high voter turnout compared to most of the state in the country. So whenever we get a voter who did not vote for a Democrat before to vote for us, it's almost like a two point swing because we're getting somebody who was on their team over to our side.
1: Charlie Sykes' radio show on WTMJ broadcast to the Wow Counties. This was the base of Republicans he was talking to. So he knows how important their vote is in determining which way the state will fall.
0: See, I'm most fascinated just uh, my bias are these suburban Republicans who used to listen to me, who I can't imagine are not seeing Donald Trump for what he is. If those voters either don't vote or vote for for Joe Biden, if if Donald Trump only gets 60% of the vote in these counties, he's going to lose the state. He's got to win like 70, 75% of the vote here. If he gets in the 50s, then it's over for him.
1: Which leads us to the big question of 2020. What's the message the campaigns are using to persuade these voters?
5: Lawless criminals terrorize Kenosha. Joe Biden takes a knee. Biden and the radical left's weak response has led to chaos and violence, and their calls for defunding police would make it worse. President Trump is making it stop, sending National Guard and federal law enforcement to protect Wisconsin's families. Communities, not criminals. Jobs, not mobs. Strong leadership when America needs it most. I'm Donald J. Trump, and I approve this message.
4: So after the Kenosha incident happened, you know, with the shooting of the unarmed black man in the back, Trump changed everything he was doing in Wisconsin. His ads were all economy focused. And then all of his ads became law and order focused.
1: When it comes to the suburban voter, the Trump campaign has doubled down on his law and order message. Andrew Hitt, chair of the Wisconsin GOP, went so far as to call it a wow county issue. Here's Andrew.
3: You know, unfortunately, the things that happened in Kenosha and now in Wauwatosa, and really the response, especially, or lack thereof, by Governor Evers, especially in Kenosha, has really brought an issue to the forefront of kind of community safety and public safety. You know, that's an issue that is, you know, moving more voters over to the president. You know, there are some issues like that that I think are very much Wow County issues that we can kind of drive home that message.
1: Of course, Trump has taken to Twitter to promote this message. Tweeting on August 12th, the suburban housewife will be voting for me. They want safety and are thrilled that I ended the long-running program where low-income housing would invade their neighborhood. Biden would reinstall it in a bigger form with Cory Booker in charge. There are a lot of these tweets over the last few months, but I think you get the picture with just that one example. The president has been criticized for using racial dog whistles in these tweets when he refers to low-income housing. Low-income housing is typically a racially loaded way to invoke black people. More specifically, implying that a poor black person would in some way be an unwanted presence in a suburban community. Here's another Trump ad that's running nonstop in Wisconsin. It depicts a 911 call from a woman stuck inside of her vehicle, surrounded by protesters.
2: Democrats enabled riots across America, even in small towns. I
5: can't get out of here, okay? And I got a little girl in the car crying. Are you
1: kidding me? This is insane.
2: Let the police do their jobs. On November 3rd, vote Trump. Restoration PAC is responsible
1: for the... Based on what he's seeing on the ground, Matt suspects that this message is landing, but with a different group of voters in the wow counties than Trump intended.
4: I think he's trying to reach, as his tweets say, the suburban women, the housewives, which I think a lot of women in the suburbs don't like being called housewives. This is not the 60s anymore. I think that's his target. You know, he talks about the unrest in the suburbs or how Democrats are going to destroy your suburbs with the dog whistle, low income housing. Waukesha is unique in that we have very traditional suburbs, which are growing, which are very wealthy, and then if you go to the southwest corner of our county, we have rural farmers and we have villages with 180 people in one stop sign. I think the people in unincorporated villages in southwest who are already diehard Trump fans, they love that messaging because I think that resonates with their perception of the world and their fear about some of the things Democrats are going to do. But then you go to the suburb, the more traditional suburbs, and I don't think that that message resonates because the way Trump is presenting it, it leans so heavy on dog whistles that you can see right through it. And he means black people. He means poor people. And in those communities where they're growing and more diverse, there's not this like unknown person factor. It's, oh, it's my neighbor. I know somebody who's black. I know somebody who's Muslim or Indian or anything because those worlds are shrinking. So it's hard to scare people with an unknown when they know what you think is the unknown.
1: While we're trying to see if the law and order message is going to work with white suburban women, there's another issue that's affecting their day-to-day lives that might take priority. Here's Sarah Godlewski. She's the Wisconsin state treasurer. She has some serious Leslie Nope vibes. When we spoke, she was wearing a necklace with a pendant in the shape of the state of Wisconsin.
5: When I looked at 2016, the one area that we know we have some work to do is with white women. I mean, 54% of white women supported Donald Trump. And so how are we talking to those women to get them to cross back over? Some of the things that I've been hearing a lot about is moms are exhausted. When COVID hit, they are trying to run their job they're trying to take care of their kids and to see that there's no light at the end of the tunnel and their kids are working remotely, they're frustrated. And I think that what Vice President Biden has been talking about with his plan, like, look, we want to open up schools safely. I mean, something that I've talked about with parents is they go, we want our schools to open, but we want to do it safely. And with this administration has literally only said if you don't open up schools, we will cut funding instead of saying, look, what do you need to open safely? How can we help you open safely? And those conversations aren't happening. And we know that's critical to getting, getting women back in the workforce and getting our lives back to, to where they were is we gotta get this virus under control.
1: Wisconsin is currently getting walloped by COVID-19. According to the New York Times COVID tracker, last week, Wisconsin experienced a 40% increase in cases compared to the prior two weeks. Alongside the Dakotas and Montana, it's leading the nation in cases during this third spike.
4: Waukesha, you know, recently we had about 400 fourth graders quarantined in Waukesha uh, city schools because of a COVID outbreak. Almost every school in the county is doing some version of a hybrid model where Students are at home half the time and they're at school half the time and parents have to figure out how to navigate that because eight months ago, no one was built to have their life where their kids are at home half the week or, or the whole week even. Now that the schools are closing and that people's day-to-day lives are just dramatically affected, it has become from a national lack of leadership to a very specific like my kids can't go to school safely. I can't figure out my day-to-day work life or whatever's going on because Trump failed to have the basics of this covered.
1: President Trump consistently receives poor marks for his handling of the coronavirus. Real clear politics shows a consistent 56 to 57% disapproval over the last few weeks. Biden's campaign has taken to the airwaves to drill down on Trump's response to the virus.
0: The first thing we should do is listen to the scientists. So I said to my people smile. Will you be wearing a mask? Yes. Look, I think it's important to follow the science.
2: I would wear one if if I thought it was important. After all
5: this time,
2: the president still does not have a plan. Well, I do. This is a battle we will win and we'll do it together. I promise you.
1: The other message the Biden campaign is driving home in these final days is an economic one.
2: I don't buy for one second if the vitality of American manufacturing is a thing of the past. We're going to impose a tax penalty on companies that avoid paying U.S. taxes by offshoring jobs and manufacturing to reward companies for creating good-paying jobs here at home. Deliver on the promise to buy America. And we're going to make it happen with American grit, American determination, and American union workers. I'm Joe Biden, and I approve this message.
1: Joe's tapping into his Rust Belt roots to appeal to the manufacturing sector of Wisconsin. Andrew, however, is skeptical that the humble Scranton Joe persona will land with voters.
3: Well, I think it depends on, you know, which Joe shows up. You know, there certainly was a Joe Biden of the past that I don't think you can deny appealed to certain voters like you described. I think he is uh, having a harder time This go around convincing people of that when he picks somebody like Kamala Harris as his running mate, she's in favor of the Green New Deal. Again, policy that is not going to benefit folks in the Green Bay area, in that manufacturing area, in that agricultural area. You know, when we take a step back and look at kind of where what the 2020 Democrats are talking about and where their party is at right now, there are a lot of things that are not very appealing to voters who maybe at one point could be interested in Joe Biden. So I, I think he actually is going to have a tougher time again with this demographic.
1: Andrew called out an area of Wisconsin we haven't touched on yet. Green Bay. Green Bay is in the upper northeast corner of the state. While technically the third largest city in Wisconsin, the Green Bay area is pretty emblematic of the Rust Belt Upper Midwest. It's home to a lot of manufacturing work, farming, and of course, the beloved Green Bay Packers.
0: Green
1: Green Bay is saturated with campaign messaging. The working class roots of the city make it a prime target for Trump's law and order message, as well as Biden's appeal to manufacturing. To get a sense of how these voters are feeling on the ground, we partnered with Dana Monroe. Dana is a producer with WBAY, an ABC affiliate television station in the Green Bay area. Hey, Dana. Hey, Grace. How are you doing uh, finding people to talk to?
6: It's been difficult, probably for every person or few people that will talk to me. Every other person will not or... Doesn't even want to be asked anything by a reporter. When I mention politics, people get very turned off and are like, sorry, nope, bye. The Green
1: Bay area, as it turns out, isn't all too open when it comes to talking about politics. Sarah Godlewski wasn't too surprised by that fact. She's a fifth-generation Wisconsinite and assured me that a reluctance to talk about politics is baked into the culture.
5: Yeah, well, I think the one thing that we are really proud of as Wisconsinites is We're kind, we're kind and we're nice people and we want to do the right thing. I mean, we work really hard and we want a fair shot at life. I think about my grandmother who was one of the first women who enlisted during World War II. And she would always say to me, even though, she's like, Sarah, we just don't talk about politics. You vote on the issues, but you know, if you talk too much about politics and you get into disagreements that can be seen as rude. And so I think that there was this kind of feeling where you don't want to be rude. You want to get to the issues. And so you kind of do that in your own way.
1: Another reason why Green Bay residents might be resistant to talking openly about their politics is because right now the area is
6: deeply divided. Here's Dana. There is one particular street I can imagine where it's like Biden sign, Trump sign, Biden sign, Trump sign, every single other house, basically You never know who you're talking to, what they think. And if you ask, you won't find out (laughs) because people are very secretive about it. Still, we wanted to try and get a sense of what's happening on the ground. So we set
1: Dana into downtown Green Bay for some man on the street interactions.
6: I went into every small business in downtown Green Bay, which has a very strange collection of stores. But I think I first walked into a subway Okay, so my question is, who are you voting for for president? I am not voting at all because I don't like either option. Okie dokie. I walked into a like old-timey chocolate store and there was a older white guy in there. Okay, Uh, do you know who you're voting for for president? Yes, I do. Okay, and will you tell me? No. Uh, Why would you not, do you not want people to know?
2: Because uh, I have friends on the right, I have friends on the left, and we don't discuss what we're voting for. Everybody knows what it is, and so not everybody needs to know.
6: So all the people in your friend group and family know who each other's voting for.
3: Right, and we respect each other's right to vote who they want to vote for.
6: What do you think would happen? Do you think there would be, like, tension between people if they knew?
2: It would be the shaking of the heads.
6: Then I went to like a juice store, like kind of a L.A. inspired, young people's juice place, and there was a young guy in there. Do you know who you're voting for, for president?
5: I do not yet. I'm still undecided. Okay. Yes.
6: And why are you undecided?
5: Why am I undecided? Well I'm just taking a look closer look at all the policies on both ends. I'm trying to stay away from the propaganda and the media driven markets and try to really figure out what the best thing for me and my country
6: is. And he also mentioned that he didn't want to be influenced by like punditry or the media or advertising. I think that we are heavily advertised, organized on in this area. So that made sense to me.
1: The fatigue Green Bay voters seem to be feeling, either for the two-party system or for politics writ large, could be amplified by just the sheer volume of ads in the area. Dana spoke multiple times about how many calls and texts she gets daily from campaigns. Her phone kept going off even during our short conversation. It's incessant. Or, well, it was until recently.
6: It was constant and it was constantly Trump-Biden, Trump-Biden all the time. But in the past month, it seems Trump has, I've heard, I don't know if they're verified, but I've heard Bill Steppian, Trump's um, campaign manager, talk about how they're sort of pulling back from Wisconsin. I think for some reason, some polling data, they are not as confident in the area anymore. Um, so they're pulling back ads.
1: It's true that the Trump campaign is pulling back on advertising. This is in part due to a serious cash flow issue. According to the New York Times, Biden entered the final month of the campaign with about three times the amount of cash on hand as the Trump team, 177 million to 63 million. This comes after the Trump campaign had raised over $1 billion, and yet recently found themselves about $100 million short for the airtime they had already reserved. Since the end of September, the amount the Trump campaign has spent on ads decreased by 23 million, during that same time, Biden increased by $99 million. The Trump campaign has cut at least $2 million worth of ads in Wisconsin alone since September. The campaign cites an abundance of confidence in doing so. But that might not be the case.
2: Good Sunday morning. Bill Stepien, the president's campaign manager, apparently, while being privately pessimistic, does, has outlined what he believes is the scenario for victory for Donald Trump. There's one state that is not included in any of these scenarios, and that is Wisconsin.
1: The Trump campaign is still giving Wisconsin a lot of attention, using perhaps the campaign's most valuable resource, time. Trump held a huge rally in Waukesha this past weekend and is scheduled to visit the state again on Tuesday, the day this episode airs. A spokesperson for his campaign told the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel that the state should prepare to see a lot of the president before November 3rd. I asked Dana what her take was on the ground. You mentioned that it seems like the Trump campaign might be withdrawing a bit from Wisconsin, at least in ads. Um, Would you estimate that that's due to a confidence in the state that they don't need to invest as much time in it? Or is it from a let's cut our losses and put our resources elsewhere?
5: I
6: have heard from like pundits and things I've read that it's the latter, that people, that the Trump campaign thinks that they don't have a chance of winning Wisconsin. I think that that's sort of what I hear from from a distance, but being on the ground, the, the Trump support feels so strong. I would think that they were pulling back because they think they can win it.
1: Trump has consistently pulled behind Biden in Wisconsin by about six and a half points. But that's not an unfamiliar position for him to be in. When I asked Andrew about his perspective on Trump's standing in the race, he was confident. He saw 2016 as Trump's battle for Wisconsin, not 2020.
3: For starters, in 2016, uh, obviously we had sort of no incumbent, brand new candidate, I would say somewhat untested, right? And we had in Wisconsin, especially in Southeast Wisconsin, sort of had what was Ted Cruz country, if you will, and sort of, I would call it almost the heart of the Never Trump movement with Charlie Sykes on the radio, not supporting the president. In 2016, you sort of had headwinds like that. This time in 2020, uh, I would say we don't have those headwinds. The Never Trump movement is kind of gone. It doesn't really, you don't really see signs of it here in Wisconsin. You have a president who has delivered on many promises that he made, whether it's you know on the economy or on judicial appointments. And so I think the landscape is, is pretty dramatically different I mean, if we go back to 2016 and we look at the, like the Marquette poll, for example, probably the the most well-respected poll in Wisconsin, had the president down by nine in June, had him down by seven in October, and two days before the election that he won here in Wisconsin, it had him down by six points. So our polls right now have him down less than six That's certainly not any kind of scientific thing that I'm relying upon, but I think it's an interesting anecdote. And as I look at our internal numbers, I'm very comfortable with where I see where we're at. I think it confirms that this is very close and it's going to come down to the ground game at the end. And we have a ground game. The Democrats don't. They have this virtual ground game that I'm skeptical is actually connecting and resonating with voters. You look at the excitement for President Trump all across Wisconsin. I mean, there is so much enthusiasm for this president in Wisconsin. You kind of look at it and you say, yeah, I I see those polls, but man, I just, I, I don't see how he loses this.
1: On Monday night, the U.S. Supreme Court gave Wisconsin Democrats another reason to worry. In a 5-3 decision, the court rejected a request by Democrats and civil rights groups to extend the deadline for counting mail-in ballots. The extension would have allowed ballots that were postmarked by November 3rd to still be counted if they arrived up to six days late. Now, all ballots must be returned by 8 p.m. on November 3rd. This same extension was granted in April the day before Wisconsin held its primary to accommodate the sudden, unforeseen circumstances of the coronavirus. The extension allowed for nearly 80,000 ballots that were appropriately postmarked but arrived late to be counted. 80,000. You know how we've been talking about margins? Well, as a reminder, this was a state that was decided by just over 22,000 votes. So this decision, which comes in the middle of a COVID surge in the state, could have huge consequences. Especially because in a typical year, only about 6% of Wisconsinites vote by mail. But this year, election officials are projecting between 60 and 80% absentee. Sarah Godlewski told me that by early October, 1.2 million Wisconsinites had already requested an absentee ballot. For context, in 2016, only 2.9 million people voted in total. And remember all those voter ID laws we talked about last episode? They're still in effect. And if you're voting absentee, you actually have to upload your photo ID before you can request a ballot. So there's a substantial burden on voters this year to navigate new systems. And from what we know so far, the majority of absentee voters are Democrats. Wisconsin is also one of many states that does not start counting absentee ballots until election day. So it's going to take a while for an accurate count to come in. And as we saw in the governor's race in 2018, the election could easily appear to be going for the Republicans, then shift for the Democrats once absentee ballots are counted. That means that election night might be a bit of a roller coaster.
0: I'm extremely worried about it. And I, and I think everybody ought to be worried about it. Um, I think it's going to be a mess. I think logistically it's going to be difficult.
1: That's Charlie again. He's preparing himself for a challenging election process.
0: I'm trying to cope with the understanding that it's not going to be over on November 3rd because I desperately want it to be over on November 3rd. I don't think I can last another hundred <laughs> days with this. Trump has made it very clear he's going to demagogue it. Yeah, I'm, 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 I'm worried about a lot of different elements of it. Although, Wisconsin tends to be efficiently run. That's the one thing we, we, we generally... The fact that that spring election came off, even though it was, was a mess, it worked. It was probably a good indication. But I, look, who who's set up to handle the flood of mail that they're going to get? We've never seen anything like this.
1: When I talk to Democrats... I wouldn't say they're optimistic. I think everyone's far too anxious after 2016, and there's too much uncertainty around 2020 to risk assuming much of anything. But I do sense that there is a strong belief that Biden's message, particularly as it relates to coronavirus, will prevail. Here's Ben Wickler.
2: There's so much variability from person to person, from community to community, about how they interpret the moment that they're living through. What everyone recognizes is that life has fundamentally changed. This is so different. I mean, so many Wisconsinites either have lost a job or lost hours or love someone who has. So many people know someone who's gotten terribly sick. It's a situation where no one can credibly say that they want four more years of this and the people who say things are actually a lot better now than they were four years ago are pretty few and far between and normally those would be the two things that have the biggest effect on whether an incumbent wins re-election there is a sense in which for a lot of voters including a lot of independent voters trump himself and the chaos that trump brings is the is the number one fundamental most important things and biden and harris represent just a a huge shift from a kind of erratic and confusing and often Disastrous, you know, roller coaster world that we live in, towards something where you you just can go to sleep at night knowing that the people in the White House have your back. It's interesting how much all the issues of this race have become refracted through the character of the people who are seeking the presidency. In a way that's not always true. I remember Kellyanne Conway said in 2016, "People vote on what affects them, not what offends them." And now it is clear that Trump's personal limitations are affecting all of us in our own lives. And that makes the solution not just a change in in Trump's platform. We need to change the president if we want a different result.
1: I don't know how Wisconsin is going to vote next week, which message will ultimately win out, which ground game will prove stronger. And in a way, regardless of the result, that's not the finish line for either side. Wisconsin will continue to grapple with the most essential challenges in our country, and Wisconsin will continue to battle for its political identity, just as all Americans are battling for theirs. This next election will set the path forward, though. In what feels like the most divisive election at the most divisive point in modern American history, we know that the choice we make next week will have strong consequences on what that path forward looks like. Now, we've got to wait and see what happens. Next week, we won't have an episode, but I hope that all of you listening will be voting or helping someone else vote that day. Winning Wisconsin will be back in your feeds the following week to talk about what happens next. Talk to you then. Winning Wisconsin is a Wonder Media Network production. It's created by myself, Grace Lynch, and produced by myself and Maddie Foley. Jenny Kaplan is our executive producer. Dana Monroe contributed reporting to this episode. For more on what Wonder Media Network is doing, you can find us on Twitter at WMN Media. For more from me, you can find me on Twitter at GraceLynch08. We're just a few weeks out from the 2020 election, and we want to make sure every eligible voter has the information they need to register to vote and cast a ballot. We're teaming up with Rock the Vote to help you register and make sure you have all the resources you need. Don't wait until the last minute. Check out Rock the Vote's resources now to make sure you're ready and signed up to get any election-related updates at rockthevote.org. Not sure if you're registered to vote? Find out at rockthevote.org. Not registered? Register to vote at rockthevote.org. Sign up to get election-related notifications that affect you at rockthevote.org. Your voice is powerful, and you're in the best position to influence your friends and family. So take the time to talk with them about the importance of making sure their voter registration is up to date, and share these resources with them at rockthevote.org. Now on to the show.